Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 35 of the Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Hello, wonderful people, and welcome to the show. Every week I'm having deep, vulnerable, and unedited conversations with powerful men from around the world who have overcome adversity to thrive in their lives and business. How are you doing in your life and your business? Are you thriving? Or are you still in the adversity stage? Are you still feeling the struggle of things? Does it still feel like an uphill battle? We're coming into September, so a few months left in the year. It's time to refresh those goals, those intentions that you set in January and you know, make a choice. Do you want to coast through to the end of the year? Or do you want to get re-energized and revived and just remind yourself of what you're here for? There's not that much longer to go in the year. And it's no time to be giving up. Take responsibility. Step up. Look at your life. How can you improve it in the next few months? How can you be more present? How can you make one extra call in your business that might change everything? How can you, I don't know, just refresh that vision and the intentions that you have for your life that you might have forgotten as you get buried at this time of the year under overwhelm and opportunity and everything that's coming at you? Don't give up. This is the chance to finish powerfully. My thoughts for the week. I've been thinking a lot about fear this week. And I really wish you guys could get a sense of just how much fear that I still feel. I think a lot of the times people kind of ask me questions like, man, you just you have so much courage. You keep doing this and that. And it's like, yeah, well, I, I may have courage, but man, do I feel the fear. Like I, I'm always fearful, especially let's just talk about this podcast. I, I'm always fearful about interviewing someone and making sure that it's a great conversation for you guys, that it's not boring, that it's going to be insightful and interesting and that this show is going to be successful and that people are going to want to continue to listen to it every week. But what I've noticed, the distinction is that my fear doesn't go away. I just learn to deal with my fear. I've confronted so many scary quote unquote situations that I kind of can see now that, yeah, Although the fear is there and it's very strong in my body, I can feel it in my, my stomach and my chest now, I know that it's not going to take me down. That's just a feeling. That's just a warning sign from my body that there could be some trouble ahead. We may risk isolating ourselves socially. We may be making a mistake. We may lose everything. We might go broke. We might be making the wrong choice uh, in this business. We might end up alone. That's all it is. It's a warning sign. And the thing is, that warning sign comes from only being able to see really what we can stand to lose. So your fear can never see all the incredible opportunities and possibilities that it stands to gain by leaning into whatever this thing is. It only feels the fear of what the negative things, what what we could potentially lose. So for me, I just learned to embrace that fear and go, yeah, there's that fear again. Is it real? Am I actually in danger? And am I able just to continue pushing through this, even though it feels scary? I've skydived twice. The first time was petrifying. I literally thought that I was confronting my death as we climbed up to altitude and the door opened and then jumped out of the plane. The second time I skydived, I recognized all those exact same feelings coming up again. And I realized, oh, yeah, that's just fear. That's just fear of death. That's just fear of the parachute not opening, whatever. And there's a small chance that that may happen, but there's a 99.9% chance that that won't. So this fear is not actually real. This is just a warning sign because this situation feels scary. 
and then I can just lean into it. So the second time I skydived, I felt the fear, but I was very comfortable feeling that fear and, you know, as they say, doing it anyway. So that's what I want you guys to know is just that uh, I'm not fearless by any stretch of the imagination. I feel a lot of fear every day about different things. I just have become more comfortable leaning into the fear and that's the secret. Until you've started leaning into a couple of fears and continue to challenge yourself over and over again, you're always going to be paralyzed by it, waiting for it to one day, if you read another book, if you go to another seminar, maybe then I won't be so fearful. But the truth is your fear is probably never going to go away. You just got to learn to deal with it. This week on the show, I spoke to Mark Usher. Mark is a wonderful guy. We were introduced uh, through a mutual friend and straight away we hit it off. I was so excited to talk to Mark in this conversation. It was his first podcast interview, so he was super excited to get into it and he did a great job. We spoke just before the conversation began and Mark was telling me that he's been obsessed with the New Zealand haka for the last couple of months and he's been watching videos of it and wanting to learn more about it. And then unbelievably, there was a a Māori chief apparently who's been traveling the world teaching people the haka. And he actually came to Ireland and came to the little town in Ireland where Mark and his family live. So Mark went and actually learned the haka from this Māori chief in Ireland, which was pretty cool. And then almost straight after that, he got introduced to me. So he had all these New Zealand links suddenly coming through to him and he sort of knew it was something he had to do. And I can see why Mark and I hit it off straight away. He's a wonderful guy, super insightful, incredibly open and vulnerable in this conversation about his life story. And I think you're going to get a lot out of it. So without further ado, enjoy this personal conversation with the powerful Mark Usher. Well, name, Mark Usher. (laughs) Mum and dad, they're both Irish, so I'm sort of steeped in... uh, in Ireland, I don't have many major links. I've lived here pretty much, yeah, I've lived here all my life. Grew up in rural Ireland, very simple life, no big lights of the city, very, very small school. Small school and it's very homely. Like, I mean, I have two older brothers and a younger sister, We're all very close together. So like only two years splitting us all up. And so I, I grew up, if you want to say, very, very protected or seemingly very protected um, you know, my two parents, you know, they, they're still together. They're, they're sort of heroes for me. They've got through so much and provided us with so much. But in the middle of all that, it's, it's almost like I almost feel that sometimes maybe, you know, I didn't hit the challenges of life because of being so protected when I was younger. And then later on, you know, when, when I graduated and in relationships and when, the, when I went out into the big bad world, I found it really, really, really tough as a man. And it was almost like the incredible warmth and love and brilliance of such a close-knit family and and such an amazing small community. I didn't feel prepared. (laughs) I didn't have anything that went catastrophically wrong when I was younger. You know, sometimes I listen to different people that get into life coaching and they, they do heroic things in the sporting field and, and you listen to their childhoods and, the, you know, the, they grew up in the ganglands or the, like their mom and dad separated when they're one or two or, you know, they, they had some crazy car crash at the age of five that they had to struggle through. I actually didn't. And um, I, I was very blessed with all of that. But I think it was like my challenges were... It's funny enough, it almost caused my inability to maybe deal with life that hit me like a brick train later. 
And if that, if that makes sense, Nathan. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I can relate as well. I had a, a fantastic upbringing, wonderful parents, middle-class New Zealand, lots of long summer nights and biking around the neighborhood and good friends and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, I can totally relate to that. When did it first hit you? Was it in university? Did you move to the city? Was it something like that when you first noticed that you know things were different, life was different? I started in my middle, about 15, 16 years of age. I started questioning... Um, I started questioning maybe life and family dynamics and I started developing maybe instead of having a, maybe being in off my parents and absolutely like air the rocks and like the rock stability, I started maybe seeing them with a critical eye and, and I've done a lot of work in that. But in that period, if I bring back, I started looking at their marriage. I started looking at the fact that they, they were smoking too much and I felt that possibly, you know, there were certain habits in drinking and I didn't, that I didn't like. And the safety zone of feeling like my family is just, that's where I belong. That's my safe zone. That started falling apart psychologically, like bit by bit, little bit by little bit. And then like I went to college and I started sort of living a different life. I was in a city in Ireland called Limerick. It's not a major city. Like, I mean, some, some people from other countries around the world wouldn't even call it a city. It was a big city to me. You know, it was a big city. The university, you know, like my secondary school, there were, I think, 200 people in it. This university, I think, was at five, six, seven thousand people, a whole bustling community. And I was there alone in the middle of it all. And yet it started hitting me really heavy where in college, I realized, you know, intimate relationships, I really, really wanted to, to be with somebody, to, to be with a girl. But I realized so much that I had such a profound lack of confidence in myself. And I found that progressively more and more crippling. And, you know, in secondary school, growing up, like maybe I could have avoided the thing. I, I was busy in sport and that. But, you know, in when you get to that age, you're, you're in your early 20s or, you know, your late teens, early 20s, you start thinking, well, I did. I started thinking about relationships a lot more. I started, it became a central part of my story. But like the part of my story that I was telling myself was I'm not really worthy of, of having somebody in my life. And I wasn't beautiful and I wasn't really, how could I be attractive to the type of girls that I found attractive? And yeah, that, that started becoming quite a, quite a shadow in my life, quite a, a dark period. It was a central story that, that caused difficulties. Yeah, and I guess you, you felt like you didn't have the tools at that point to pull yourself out of it. You didn't feel equipped to get out of that. No, I didn't. One of the things that I had developed, I see now so clearly, is I had, to the outside world, created this facade of the friendly guy, the happy guy, the confident guy. You know, I was doing physiotherapy. I went back, I repeated my leave insert. And they're the, the final secondary school exams here in Ireland. I nailed it. Like, you know, my results in school, which is like at that point in your life is like a major achievement. You know, I, I was in the top 0.01% in the country, if you want to say, for the results that I had. I was in the course that at that time, that's what I really wanted to do with my life. I was good at sport. I was fit. So I sort of found it easy to throw off and I became a master of throwing off this facade of, 
when Mark has it going on and I was, I use my humor, my wit to sort of always keep one up on everybody in the nicest way possible. I was never putting people down, but I was always sort of having to expend so much energy in trying to communicate to people that I'm okay. I'm fine. You know, don't worry about me. I was the one that actually went helping everybody else. You know, if people were having relationship problems and here was me sometimes even crying myself to sleep because I'd, I'd never had a girlfriend. Here was me giving fecking relationship advice to five and six different people at the time. And, you know, it sort of seemed like good advice and people were like, oh my God, like that's a really great insight. And yet I hadn't a notion about what it was like to open up in a relationship. I didn't know how to do that. And I, so it, it, there was a big, massive hypocrisy there that I was trying, what I was trying to put out and what I was living on the inside. And the more that went on, the more I felt I couldn't actually own up. I couldn't because owning up was a catastrophe for me. It was sort of saying to the world, if, if I sort of told people how I was feeling, I was admitting I'm a fraud to, to my mind. It was like, I'm a fraud. I'm actually not who I've been saying. And, and I found that very suffocating. Yeah, it's so, so interesting. And so, I think so prevalent. You know, you're a coach. I hear all the time from men is creating that facade. And something that helped me understand it is that as men, we have three layers to us. We have the layer that we show the outside world. And we come up with that layer because we're trying to hide something. So we try to be the confident guy and put that out because behind that we're actually not that confident we don't mm. feel confident in ourselves so we have to pretend that we are confident and then there's the third layer which is the truth we're just who we are there's no right or wrong confident or not confident there's just our pure self we develop these layers on top of each other and for me that's the same thing like i realized when i was 12 that i was probably gay and second thought I had was that I could never live that life and so it took me 10 years till I was 22 to actually come out and the same thing I remember thinking man I've created all of these relationships in my life based on a lie that I'm straight mm, and mm -hmm. so not only do I have to come out for myself but I also have to tell the people closest to me that I'm not who they thought I was and a lot of people that that's how they responded that you've been living a lie how could you do that to me? But, you know, they eventually came around. But how did you start the process of you know, coming out per se? <laughs> I actually, <laughs> I laugh looking back, but like my coming out, my sort of what I looked like, it was like a breakdown or breakthrough moment. I was in a bookstore, one of the main bookstores in, in Limerick City uh, in my university town. And the mind, body, spirit section was the section that I avoided like the plague. It's like, I sort of intellectually knew it existed, but I never ever walked down that aisle. I, I had an allergic reaction to it. What was the reaction? Where did that come from? Well, like, you know, for me, mind, body, spirit section, going there was me admitting I needed help. That was like me sort of saying, okay, this facade, it's crap. You know, if you pick up a book there, it felt like I was a loser. And, and I really remember that day that I went in and, and I was looking in my normal sections. I was looking at, you know, sports books or, you know, like sort of anatomy, physiology type stuff for physio, physiotherapy stuff I was doing and mountain climbing and 
was looking at all that, but I found that I was magnetically attracted for the first time ever to go to the mind body spirit section. And I actually stood there looking down the aisle and, and it sounds crazy now because like I have bought like and read, I don't know, I've lost count. It's hundreds of books now. Um, I love philosophy. I love mind body spirit. It's the section I go for. But that moment, it like I was standing looking down that aisle thinking, oh my God. And, and eventually I took a few steps over and like I was looking at it, Nathan, like I found a section in front of me of this psychologist, an Irish psychologist, of, there was a range of books of his, and I was looking at them sort of from three foot away, and I sort of joke with friends now when I talk about this, it's like I was looking at, you know, like you're a 12 year old and you're looking up at the, the dirty magazines in the top shelf, and you feel really awkward because you know you shouldn't be looking at them. And I really felt like I was looking over my shoulder to see, well, what if a mate comes in from college, you know, that I'm like this happy, go lucky, confident guy, and they see me about to pick up a psychology book. And I had sweat in my palms when I picked up this book. I finally, from like three yards, picked out a title that was like, okay, that's the one for me. I think it was called uh, Flying the Nest. It was about, at that time, you know, my family, I was going through flying the nest, what, like finding meaning in how could I become who I wanted to become and leave the nest and all my relationships with my parents, with my brother's sister, they were all changing. So it really resonated with me, but I didn't look inside the book. I was from the title. I picked it up under the arm, raced over to the, to the cashier, looking over the shoulder. I literally mean, now if I can think of, I'm going to like some crazy porn magazine of, I don't know if you said like granny and donkeys magazine and with a big explicit <laughs> horrible picture in the front, I would have felt way less awkward if a mate came over and said, man, you're into some sort of crap there. I was like, I would have proudly said, yeah, I am fine. I love this type of stuff quicker than somebody coming over, one of like the rugby guys or the football guys, you know, coming over the mountaineering guys, you know, the, these macho type fellas, you know, all acting tough, drinking beer, like, and if they come over and saw, shit, man, you're buying a self-help book. What's wrong with you? I would have felt easier with the, with the crazy extreme porn magazine. And like, that's crazy for me now, but like that was so real at that time because that, that moment for me was, as you say, it's like the coming out. That was me admitting to myself, admitting to life, to the universe of like, Mark, you're up shit Creek without a paddle you really need help. Like, I mean, you have issues and you got to do something here. But like, yeah, that was the one moment. And I'm here as a result of that. I, I believe like that one moment, if I didn't actually jump in at the deep end of the pool that day and face my fears and actually go through it, you know, I, I don't know how life would have turned out. It was, it was definitely a turning around for, for my life, Pat. Yeah, well, a lot of people never get the book. A lot of people never take that step. So yeah, you've got the results of having done that. Absolutely. And like the results, I feel so fortunate now that life, the universe, grace, whatever words we would like a person can put on it. But like, I'm grateful a friend didn't come up, <laughs> you know, because if a friend did come in, I mean, I was in my university town, there's hundreds of people could have come in that could have known me that I could have just chucked it down and thrown it in a bin or I don't know what, like, 
But it didn't. It didn't happen. And, you know, here I am, I don't know how many years later, 11, 12, 13 years later, and, and I'm talking to Nathan Seward. I'm doing my first podcast. I'm, you know, I, I'm talking not just with yourself, but I'm, I'm engaging also psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, um, energetically with all your great listeners. And I have this great privilege to be having this experience as a result of kicking that off. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very grateful. Is there an Irish piece to all of this that you can identify that maybe, you know, people from New Zealand or other countries might not know or resonate with in terms of feeling like that stuff is weak or having the small town upbringing and then kind of getting onto real life? Is there like an Irish piece here that we need to understand? I don't know. Is it unique? May not be, but like what I might recognize as maybe an Irish piece is in conversations with my wife and like she, Matilda's from Italy and obviously I'm from Ireland. There was one guy that really summed up the difference between Ireland and Italy, but it sort of brought into, into focus maybe the, the issue with Ireland. is like, guys, there's one key difference between Irish people and Italian people. It's like Irish people suffer with emotional constipation Italian people suffer with emotional diarrhea. (laughs) (laughs) And I've lived in both cultures. You see, I I haven't lived in New Zealand to sort of give a comparative thing, but I think this is getting a bit to to answering your question. You know, you go to Italy, it's all passion. It's all love. It's all, you know, they talk about sex really openly. Like, I mean, on TV, there's, you know, the Bellina, there's a program, I think it's Trisha Lantatizia, like, I mean, semi-naked women gyrating at the end of it to do. And I mean, this is, you know, they've had the, the Playboy since, you know, just after World War II. I still remember growing up in Ireland when, you know, the first time that the Playboy was allowed to be sold, and I think only in some shops in Dublin, it was a national controversy. And I, so, like, I, I'm in my mid-teenage years, I remember this. And, you know, whether you agree or not with, you know, like with light porn, heavy porn, whatever, this was Ireland, you know, like we were late to develop this openness to everything, you know, to sexuality, to, to mind, body, spirit, to new, like, I mean, you can talk to some people here and like we were talking with somebody there recently and yoga is like almost like an act of the devil. Matilda is a yoga instructor. I do, I've been doing yoga years and I know you do yoga, but like, oh, is that talking with spirits and is that talking and like Reiki as well? We do a Reiki energy healing and there's all these preconceptions about what it is and, you know, and there's just a lot of ignorance. Now it's changing rapidly, but yeah, just the emotional intelligence and I think emotional suppression. Now, I have deep feelings uh, about this. I I think in Ireland, the church has played a very heavy role in suppressing people's opinions of themselves, in their Mm. emotionality, in their love of themselves. And, And when I talk about the church, I don't talk about the teachings of Jesus. I think the teachings of Jesus are spiritual poetry. Like I stopped going to to the church when I was 11. You know, I started questioning things. I've always been questioning things. I was the first in my family when I was 11. My family were going out to, to mass and I just turned to my mother and father and said, look, at, I don't feel like going. And it wasn't an immature sort of a, I just want to play. It was really, I've been questioning this within me and it doesn't inspire me. So I choose not to go. And they were very respectful. They, they let me, they let me stay. They, they, they respected that decision. So yeah, like the, the, the Irish scenario, like there's one thing that comes really prominent for me 
which is self-praise is no praise. Now, I've heard that growing up within the Irish context. I don't know, does it exist, something similar down in New Zealand? But like, No, I've never heard that. You've never heard that? No. That in Ireland is a very uh, common saying. And you would have been, like, I would have heard that so often growing up. And it's sort of said in a playful way, like a lot of these old sayings. Hmm. But I see now that the mental emotional conditioning of always hearing this, you know, self-praise is no praise. Well, if, if I can't praise myself, if I can't with the power of my thoughts and with the power of my words, think or say something good about myself, and that counts for nothing like that. Effectively, people said, no, that counts for nothing. That's crap. You can't do that. You know, like if you say to somebody, oh, Jesus, I like I, I absolutely nailed that. You know, I did. I was like, oh, Jesus, that match. I was just in like. I whipped ass in that match, you know, and, you know, I kicked six points in Gaelic football and then all self-praise is no praise, man. So effectively, like if you wanted to connect with people growing up, well, if you praise yourself, you're cocky and you're arrogant. So if you want to connect, well, say, oh, I had a good enough game, but Jesus, I missed two frees. Feck's sake, man. And now you're connecting. People say, oh, yeah, shit. Like, I mean, yeah, last week I bombed out. I mean, you connect with pessimism and you connect with self-criticism. And, and that for me has affected myself so profoundly until I realized that the mechanism behind it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that possibly is, is an Irish yeah. unique phenomenon. Yeah, that's, that's spot on. It makes me think of New Zealand. We have the tall poppy syndrome. I don't know if you call it that in Ireland, but it's something that's very well known in New Zealand and Australia, actually about kind of cutting people down when they get too big for themselves or when they put themselves out there too much, you bring them back down to size. And I think it makes a lot of sense that, you know, we're, we're built on the foundation of the English, the Irish, Scottish and Welsh. So it makes sense that those kind of behaviours have translated into our culture. Now, I wouldn't say New Zealand is a heavily religious society by any stretch of the imagination, but we have a lot of those cultural aspects just in our DNA. Yeah. And so I see like this, the same thing, you know, one of the top comedians, Di Henwood, he was on the show a couple of months ago. And he said, you know, for him, it's been learning the difference between just being confident and being arrogant. And Kiwis don't really know the difference to that. They think that if you say, hey, my name's Nathan, I'm a successful coach, I have a very successful podcast, they go, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. All right, mate, don't, you know, don't go on about it. Don't get too yeah. big for your boots. Where it's actually, no, I'm just, I'm speaking the truth, I'm speaking the facts. And, it's okay to be confident in your abilities and the things that you do well. We don't have to connect on this lowest level of just our misery and what's not going well. And that's kind of the lowest form of connection, just connecting on everything that's you're struggling with in your life rather than the things that you do well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've since recognizing this mechanism and reflecting on it deeply, you know, I do a daily practice that I call it my thought emotion alliance practice, which is I like I find the highest thoughts that I can think about myself and about life. And I link them and I the practice is I link those highest thoughts with really, really as high and positive emotions as I can. And like it's a practice I've come across, I've sort of self-invented, which when you get that alliance, you repeatedly practice these really high thoughts linked with the high emotions and that forms a belief. And like we create our lives from our beliefs. And like one of those 
key foundational statements that I say on a daily basis, and I really enjoy it the most, is I practice submerging myself in total self-confidence that I can be, do, or have whatever I put my mind on. And, you know, I keep saying that to myself. And ever since I started with that sentence and, and lots of other things in my morning practice, you know, I, I say it openly in conversation. I said it there a couple of weeks back or a month back um, in conversation with a person I said, look, I'm not arrogant. I'm not cocky because they sort of insinuated or implied you're just being cocky here. I said, I'm not. I'm not either of those two things. But I do practice being totally confident in what I think, in what I say, in what I do. You know, will I be right? Will I be wrong? I live out the consequences. I'm not saying I'm always right. But if I think something, if I say something, and if I do something, I practice doing it with total confidence. I live with the consequences, but that's what I practice. And like the, the person looked at me, Nathan, and they said, oh my God, that sort of confidence, that's such a privilege. And the conversation ended up being sort of cut short. Other people came in at that point. But I went away and I just reflected on it. I don't really know what the person meant. Was like, was it a privilege? But the word that came to me was, it's not a privilege. It's our birthright. Every human being on the planet has the birthright to be totally confident in themselves. And like, it's a central message. If I had any message to any human out there listening to this, any message to you, I don't say if it's a message to somebody else, it's a reminder to me is just practice, allow yourself, give yourself the permission to be your brilliant best. Now, you know, if you say something, Say it like you believe it. Say it. Just be confident with it. Don't apologize for it. Don't say, oh, but I think this, but then maybe I'm wrong. Cut out the end of, of the bit. Don't put the bit like so many people do, like I did for so many years in my life where, you know, I might say something that I thought was true, but I was putting a safety net there of, oh, but I might be wrong. And then, you know, the more the other confident person won out in that conversation. I didn't have a power of influence. It's like, just go for it. Just go for it, practice it. Because when you practice being confident, what I found, it's a practice. That statement that I say is, I practice being, submerging myself in 100% self-confidence. It's not I am, it's a practice. You know, do I get it right every day? I don't. You know, was I a bit nervous coming up to this podcast? I was nervous, I was excited. It was like, oh my God, you know, will the technology go? Will the Wi-Fi go? What if Nathan asked me this? There's a little bit of that, there is. But then when the call comes, I'm like, okay, there's an on switch in me. I have a conscious switch that I can go at any moment. If I slip and I find myself, I've doubts and fears coming in, well, just hit that switch mark, go to 100% self-confidence. And it's a practice and I'm getting better with it. And, you know, I think any human on the planet can access that switch, anybody. It takes practice. If you start playing football, if somebody goes to the gym, or I often use the example, Nathan, it's like a lot of people will be comfortable with the idea of, you know, if you're really unfit now and you're a bit overweight, people know that if you want to run a 5K race, well, you might start walking and then you might work it out to you're walking with a little bit of jogging and then you're jogging a kilometer and, and then you gradually make it up to 5K and then you start maybe considering 10K and then lo and behold, like with like over two years, three years, whatever, it depends on your discipline, you know, you're running a marathon. Nearly everybody gets that. 
you know, like you ask pretty much anybody from any background, they'll know that you can't go from sedentary to marathon style, you know, in a day. But we've often been educated in our education system, in our religious practices, that the same is true of the mind. Self-confidence, as I say, it's not a privilege, it's a right. It's something that you can practice. You're allowed practice. Yeah, I think it just, it goes around as so, uh, for me, there's a social lack of, I think we feel like we need permission to be that. I don't know, does that resonate with you, Nathan? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it resonates perfectly. The, the thing that's coming up for me is what are your practices for cultivating that? And like I think you just said it, you know, saying, having those statements and that little exercise you do with yourself every morning and then learning to practice confidence, practice speaking your truth. And then there's the other part, which is like, well, what about other people think of me? What if they don't like what I say? What if I get isolated? All those human fears that people have. How did you overcome those kind of things as you stepped into this way of being? A life practice for me, a philosophy is progressively, I sort of see myself that my soul puts me into more high pressure situations. I have this practice, like I remember in school, the teacher asked, oh, who's going to do the debate? And most people were, no, 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 no. Because I had a real fear of public talking, yet I just found that my hand went up before my head had any time. Mm. And I followed that impulse. Uh, It was like, hand up. Oh, Mark, okay, you're doing it. And then it was like, okay, well, I'm just going to have to dig deep here. I think I lost track with that in years, you know, in, in early college years when I think there was a lot of anxiety. That's when I did with real severe suffocating self-confidence in that. But I regained that, that perspective. I regained that. Just jump into it. And, you know, like if you jump in, if you jump from the Grand Canyon and you've wings on your back, like it's only when you jump that you'll spread the wings. But if you always sort of go in that safety zone, I mean, you'll never make use of the wings to soar type thing. So, you know, how did I cope? Sometimes I didn't, but I learned to get up. You know, there was times when I put myself very vulnerable and I didn't feel good at the end of it. But then I always reflected at the end of it. I sort of questioned it and I ended up through, I was practicing more. I was reading more books. I got into meditation. I was doing yoga. I ended up, and the more I was doing that, the more little bit by little bit, I started talking with people. And I think that was the key sort of a factor of, just when you start being able to talk with people, you start being able to uh, disengage the power of these negative emotions. You start realizing that, well, it's, it's universal. I'm not the only guy in the room that's suffocating at home. I'm not the only guy in the room that he doesn't have shit hot confidence. I'm not the only guy in the room that, that has crap going down. And the more I could sort of accept that within myself, the more I could connect with people. And yeah, it's been a slow process, but a beautiful process. And what were some of the troubles you went through? I mean, we, we mentioned porn a couple of times back there, and I know you mentioned to me that you had issues with that. What were some of the other troubles, you know, in your sort of darkest moments that you had to get through? I think that, Nathan, the, the darkest moments, it was after college. In my final year in college, I got into reading in depth. I was reading Eckhart Tolle, The, the Power of Now. I got into Tibetan Buddhist uh, philosophy and I was practicing meditation, but so much stuff was happening. And I was realizing for the first time in my life, it's like, I'm being somebody who I'm not. I like, I was accepting that, okay, this facade, it's not me. And the dark period was that, you know, I ended up, I graduated and I met the love of my life, Matilda. Like, I mean, she's just, 
I have the amazing gift in my life that, you know, my life partner, I literally hand and heart can say, I could never have chosen a more amazing person to share that with. But my ability to say that has taken me six or seven long years in the beginning of our marriage relationship to realize that fully. You know, there was the beginning period where, yeah, like we, we got we got married after six months together. We moved in together like after two weeks. And then we went and we did the, the pilgrimage to Santiago where pretty much literally, I think 95% of it hand in hand walking along. And like that's, that's 35 days with nothing to think about, only you're walking. I mean, every last demon that was inside both of us was coming to the surface. The first two weeks was great. Then there's the middle bit where it's getting a little bit stagnant. And then there's a lot of crap coming to the surface. And like we had this love, we had this deep connection, but like all that crap that was coming to the surface for me and for Matilda, like she has quite a complicated upbringing where, you know, her parents separated when she was one or two. There was lots of sort of cheating going on in her family. You know, there was, there was a lot of stuff going on. So relationship wise, it was incredibly intense what we had to go through together and um, with all these deep, dark emotions coming up. And we ended up, we, we came back to Ireland from the pilgrimage. There was a lot of stuff coming up. And like sort of six months later, I think we've said we've moved down to Italy. And that's where the, the crap hit the fan for me emotionally the, the most, because I see it now. I was inspired to a point going down to Italy, but to be honest, I think I was more scared shitless and I was running away from my identity in Ireland. And I had this sort of idea, oh yeah, let's, let's go down to Italy. It's fresh, it's new, it's a fresh start. I'll be able to construct a new identity there free of like, free of the baggage of, of Ireland. But I mean, I was going to a, a country where I didn't speak Italian at that point. There was a lot of stuff we were living with, with Matilda's family there. And it was really intensely difficult. Effectively, there was a big family sort of a surge of, they didn't really give two hoots about if this Irish guy lasted or not. If anything, you know, if I was just cut out of the picture, who gave a crap? And like Matilda was pregnant with her first baby at this, at this time. So when we moved down there, you know, Matilda and myself, we were madly in love, but Matilda ended up having to deal with all her inner demons, which were being triggered every single day by her family. It ended up that, you know, she was working in the equestrian center. We were running like from seven in the morning till very late at night. I felt at my most lonely in my entire life because of my pride and not being able to talk with people so much. I sort of self alienated myself from my brothers, from friends that I had at home that I could have spoken with. They're good guys, but I, I didn't feel able at that point, you know, and I just got into this really, really sticky moment where the deeper I got into it, the less inclined I felt that I could ring them. And it was a vicious downward cycle. Matilda wasn't really in a place to help me because she had so much stuff going on and we had a new baby and sleepless nights. It got really deep and dark. And, and that's when, you know, that's when I started having suicidal thoughts. And it sounds crazy. I, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but you know, they were playful thoughts. And I think that's the thing that frightens me now. It's like, they were playful. In the beginning, it was like, I was playing around almost like, you know, you might playfully think, well, Jesus, where will I travel next? Where will I travel this summer? You know, oh, Jesus, like you playfully considered at some point, I might go to Columbia. I was playfully sort of going, 
I might commit suicide like it was, yeah, I might go to Aspen or I might go skiing or, and mm. it had this real easiness thing because I didn't think it was real. I was having a shitty period in my life. I was really deep, really. I was having anxious breakdowns. I was feeling depressed. You know, I, I got to one point where I realized for the first time in my, in my life, what the old saying means, like you can run, but you can't hide because for three or four mornings in a row, my first thought waking up, opening my eyes, knocking off the alarm, the thought was, I can't wait till I go asleep that night because my daily experience was that hard. I was like, yeah, I'm getting out of bed. I couldn't stay in bed. There was stuff, there was horses to mine and all the rest. That was my thought. And like, I only had four mornings, four or five mornings like that when the nightmares started. So it was tough then. But like what I see now is, it was tough for a reason. And what I look at it now is, you know, I put myself in Italy. I put myself with Matilde. I was in control of having a baby or not. I was in control of like, would I stay at home or will I go to a country where I don't understand the language? That was all in my control. So, you know, it got to a point, Nathan, where, you know, I ended up having, it got really, really out of control. And I got aggressive with Matilda at one point and like, she was holding Anya, who was only like three or four months at the time. And I ended up, I kicked her in the shin. I got so annoyed, but she was flinging stuff at me. I was flinging stuff and I just thought like, this is totally unwarranted. I went and I cried in a room like for, for an hour. Uh, but Matilda, she called in her dad and we ended up, it was the first time I started speaking with a human and her dad was immense in that moment because he didn't take sides. You know, I was after kicking his daughter, but he, he's a great guy. He ended up just listening and hearing it out like as impartially as he could and it depressurized. But like at that point I made one decision and my life has never been the same since. I made one decision, which was to accept entirely the situation I found myself in and to do whatever was necessary to get myself happy and my family happy. That was a turnaround moment in my life. No more than getting the book in that bookstore. That was a major, maybe the most major turning point in my life because I just accepted everything that was in my control. And, and I haven't looked back since. Oh, that's an amazing story. Thank you for sharing it. I relate on so many levels to what you're saying. And one thing that just struck me was, you know, I lived in uh, Japan for three and a half years in Tokyo. I left New Zealand for the first time when I was 30. And that's a hard thing to do, you know, to leave and go somewhere where you don't speak the language and it's a long way from home and scary, lonely. But I feel the same thing reflecting on what you just said. I feel like, well, I put myself in that position. And why did I do that? Well, part of it was, I felt living in New Zealand was just too comfortable. I just had everything there. I wasn't being pushed. It was too easy just to live life day to day without too much happening. You know, I had all my friends there, mm. my family, and it's amazing to have so much love and support, but I felt super comfortable, super comfortable. And I knew deep down that there was some demons and stuff that I had to go and confront. And I didn't think I could do that from that comfortable place. But looking back, I think the reason I went to Japan and just put myself in such a crazy situation was just to remove myself from all the comforts so that I could go to rock bottom and figure out what the truth was for me and what I was actually put on the earth to do. And it's an interesting reflection. Mm. 
I'm going to go in at the deep end here, Nathan, because there was one thing. I know you sort of emailed before this and so set a context for maybe this conversation. So if I may, I'm going to jump in very vulnerable here. Mm. And I'm going to, because I'm conscious of just that this conversation be the greatest service to those listening and, and to your growth and my growth. Like there's one approach that I've learned, one belief or one, uh, one life philosophy, if you want to call it, out of all of this. When I say I'm being vulnerable here, I normally only share this with clients with that I've, you know, one and one, I've built up a, a deep trust and, and we've got things going, a big connection and, and only with maybe friends, family, that there's a really deep trust. So I've never sort of put this out in public. I know I'm just psychologically talking with you, but I'm also, you know, your big, cool audience as well. But, you know, I'm going to make a statement, a belief that I have, and I'd just like to hear your response, Nathan. And might just direct this conversation maybe deeper. You know, what I practice is I am God. And I practice believing you are God. And then I allow God to be God. It's like I am God, you are God, and God is God. You know, I, I just ask you, like, when I say that, what does that bring up in you? Well, two things. One, I know exactly what you mean and I'm 100% there with you. And on the other side, I'm like, ah, I freak out because I think the people listening don't understand what you mean by God and there's all these different meanings of God that doesn't represent what you're saying. Um, so there's two, I feel two parts of me. But the part of me that is, is that I understand the truth behind that, it's like the, the saying namaste, they say, and they say that the meaning mm. of that is that the, the God in me acknowledges the God in you. It's the, mm. the kind of the English bastardized translation of it. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so what that brings up for me is, you know, it's a nice reminder because day to day I forget stuff like that. But that is to say that there is, you are a physical representation of the divine. And when I interact with you, I won't speak to you as anything less than you being the physical presence of the divine. Mm, mm. Yeah, you see, it's like, I get bored of both of those things that you said. And like the, the second part, and this is why I'm saying it. And you know, if I'm saying it to be controversial, mm. not to be different, but I'm saying it because I believe in, in deep conversations, there's a need to say what might be dangerous, what might be risky to say. I actually think that's the most important thing to say. And I know, I know this is very controversial for me. And this is why I say I'm being vulnerable because I know that I say this, a lot of people can go, well, who the hell is that guy? Like, what the feck? I mean, is he deluded? I am God. What the feck does that mean? I mean, who, like, what's this, where's this conversation going? But I do think it's so fundamental and it's so important. And where I'm coming from, and it's, it's a bit getting back to the Irish situation. And, you know, I got back to, you know, the conditioning of, well, where did it come? The whole self-praise is no praise. I remember in school, there, there was teachings and there were like very much Christian teachings, Roman Catholic, and the whole thing of, you know, Jesus. And Jesus said, he was the son of God. And Jesus said, well, ye, you all are children of God. And I remember saying it to, to different teachers. It was like, okay, well, miss or sir, you know, if Jesus said he was the son of God, he, he said that, didn't he? And oh, yeah, 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 yes, Mark, yes, of course. And lovely smile, you know, it's this innocent child saying this with open eyes, you know, and 
And then he said, we're children of God. Yeah, he did, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. you have it right. Perfect. I was like, well, then he obviously was suggesting that I'm the exact same as Jesus. I'm the exact same as him. That we're all the exact same as him. And any time I made that link, the person in front of me got really awkward and effectively swept that comment under the carpet. And I just find, like, you know, within the Irish context, but the church has had quite a profound influence under, if you want to call it, Western culture, Western societal, you know, the, the norms and the way we think. And that's why I go to this. This is why I go controversial, because I think, you know, it's very important to maybe get to the root of why we end up having issues praising ourselves. We end up having issues and we don't even know why, but looking in the mirror, we don't even, we can't allow ourselves to feel, yeah, which well, is, I'm, I'm beautiful. And I love that person that's looking back at me. I think I'm amazing. I'm a miracle of life. We struggle with that because, you know, from the Irish context, from my own personal context, you know, th- that was very profound. Is it almost to say that if you are a Christian, I mean, we're talking about Christianity not just in this moment. If you are a Christian, you can't believe yourself to be anything less than that. Yeah, well, I think that's what was implied. You know, I think Jesus, an enlightened being, I don't think he got his words mixed up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like some people sort of, I've I've said that in in certain conversations and, you know, certain people will be like, oh, no, well, that's not, you You can't be saying that. And it's like, well, are you saying that Jesus was drunk that day? (laughs) There was a lot of red wine in the equation, so we can't rule anything out. Well, we don't know, but like, you know, what was, did he get it wrong? Did he muck up that day? Like, did the secretary take it down wrong? Maybe, are you suggesting that Jesus said it? And then he read this, like he read the script the next day and thought, oh shit, why did I say that? Because I don't believe he did. You know, I think it was a very direct teaching to say, you know, sort of don't worship me as being the great. What I'm saying is, I'm the son of God. I like the kingdom. And he also like the kingdom of God is within you. And like Buddhist teachings. And, you know, this isn't, I don't want to, this is not about religion. I like, it's, it's about spirituality. It's about what it means to be human. Buddhist teachings, what really hit home with me is like, you know, the Buddha spoke is like, Buddha's Buddha's nature and your Buddha nature, if you want to call the God within, or, you know, using all different languages or your Christ consciousness, your Buddha nature and the Buddha's Buddha nature, there's no difference. And so many other different traditions, mystical traditions, sort of hold the same. But we sort of lost contact with that. And like for so long, like, you know, you, this whole thing of original sin. I have held two of my children as they've come into the world. And, you know, to say that they have sin in them, I don't get that. I don't believe that and I'll never think that and, and I know like my belief is every single human listening to this and every single human when they're born, I don't believe the sin. I think I believe we were born from divinity, we were born divine and like somewhere along the way we've been sort of by society through education, through misinterpretations, through religion, through school, through, through whatever, through the whole lot of it. We've sort of been told a story that I mean, it's inevitable that you end up with such mental illness around the world, with the story that we've been pushed upon. And, you know, this is why I bring up this topic is I think men and women, I think humanity, we need to start giving ourselves permission to tell a higher story, you know, to tell a story about our identity, that we're proud of actually our divinity. We're proud 
of we are like unlimited. We are able to speak of ourselves in these high terms, because if not, well, then it's a 20, 30 year long struggle through counseling to, you know, to sort of maybe might get there, but we don't really ever get there. It's just permission. Yeah, I think it's important too to question, you know, for me, so much of my coaching, so much of my own personal deep work is just awareness, you know, awareness of what am I doing? Where are these thoughts coming from? Why am I feeling that? Why am I not willing to feel that? Why am I distracting myself on Facebook? Trying to bring some awareness to this stuff. And when you bring up the topics of I am God, I'm the son of God, I am Buddha nature, I would encourage anyone that is resistant to that or feels that that's weird or that it's just like, uh, whatever, here's some guy going on about God <laughs> again. Question that response. Where does that response come from within you? The part that's resisting that, the part that doesn't get it, the part that disagrees with it or, or feels awkward around it. What's that part? Where did that part come from? Mm, the mm. part of you that is in resistance to Mark being confident and saying this stuff and knowing what he's good at, the part of you that resists that feeling of somebody else's confidence, where does that come from? Where did that belief come from? Who installed that? Did you install that? Does that serve you? Is that a choice you've made to be resistant to those kind of things? Start to question those beliefs because a lot of the times it's stuff that was installed in us just like you say, by virtue of being born in a certain country. We get indoctrinated into these beliefs and cultures and we never question them. Mm, mm. Yeah, absolutely. Because if, if we don't question this and like, as I say, <laughs> you know, I've brought up an awkward topic, but I've done it consciously because I think it's a topic that we don't talk about. And, you know, the topics that we don't talk about, if we don't talk about them, we can't get to the core. And like we create our life experience, every single thing we live out results from how we feel we can think about ourselves, how we feel we can think about life. And we wonder, and like I wondered for so long, you know, it's like I was reading so much stuff. I was reading a lot and I was listening to different teachings and, but I wasn't changing. Like I was reading, I was like conscious on the path. I'd read so many books, but like three years, four years later, I was having suicidal impulses. That didn't make sense. And I, I see now it's like this permission. It was like, yeah, I was reading this. It was like, I wasn't good enough. I didn't feel worthy enough to allow myself. I remember back in Christmas shopping in Florence. And I think Matilda was pregnant at the time. If, if I remember well, it was our first couple of months down in Italy. And I was in there again, the mind, body, spirit section. But in front of me, I had like a display of 10, 15 books of like, you know, the the top coaches in the world, there was Tony Robbins there, Wayne Dyer, there was Eckhart Tolle, like you know, Deepak Chopra amongst others. And, and I ended up having like an anxiety breakdown because like it was off the back of like my life isn't significant. I'm not doing anything extraordinary with my life. In actual fact, my life is so ordinary. I felt useless. And I was looking at these guys and thinking they're living the life and they're extraordinary. And I was growing up, I grew up with this dream that I wanted to be, you know, inspirational and I wanted to live a life of happiness and abundance. And I wanted to live a life that was a leading example, you know, that, that people could look up at and, and go, oh, wow. You know, like 
geez, I'll follow with that guy, Tosin. But I didn't feel like that. And I find that one thing that emerged for me, Nathan, was out of all of that, what I realized eventually was the ordinary life I was living. I had a choice to live it in an extraordinary way. So many of these books and so many, if you look at motivational talks, you know, on YouTube and that, and you're looking at these sports stars and you're looking at these people that are big A-list actors in Hollywood. And this guy, well, he like climbed X amount of mountains and that guy like has swam under the sea, like or under the ice for 20 minutes. That fella has the world record. And it's like, as guys, it's like, all oh, there's this ocean avalanche of these guys that do extraordinary feats. And, and there's nothing to take away from them. It, like it's extraordinary what these humans can do. But I find the, the key thing for myself is, as guys, we don't need to scale Everest to be extraordinary. I find that, you know, what I say to guys is, you know, just live your ordinary life extraordinarily. And that means you're extraordinary. You know, like when you go in home, you know, be extraordinary with your partner, your wife or your, your boyfriend or whatever it is, be extraordinary as a dad, you know, like, when you get up in the morning, make your bed extraordinarily, make it tidy, make it clean. I heard like an, an admirable in, in this motivational talk just there today before this podcast. And he said, that's the first task of the day done right. Like do it well. And like, it's the first task. And that leads to the second task. And like eat really healthy. And then there's so many different things that we can do in our lives that it's so easy to go, well, Jesus, this is just humdrum all life, I go to work, come back, I have money struggles, I have a wife, I have kids, roof over the head, but you know, you listen to so many people, it's like same shit, different day sort of philosophy. But it's like, how do we bring sacredness? How do we invest ourselves into our lives? How do we make it extraordinary? And it's, we have a choice. You know, like we have so much of a choice. We have a choice every single second of our life of when you go in home, do you gift your brightest smile to your partner, to your kids? Do you gift your brightest smile to your colleagues? You know, it's a choice. Do you mind your nutrition? Do you exercise? Do you, like, when you do your job, whatever job you find yourself in, and even if it's not your life purpose, and like, you know, talking with through podcasts or to a life coach, like, you know, but when you were a pilot, were you the best pilot that you could be? Or were you going around thinking, well, I'm pissed off. Pilot's not my job. I don't want to do this. I want to be a life coach. You know, were you living in depression doing that job? Or, you know, how, how was that experience? <laughs> Good question. Initially, for me, it was what I loved. It's my passion since I was a little boy. It's all I've ever wanted to do. And, you know, I couldn't wait to leave school to get into flying airplanes. I just couldn't believe what a gift it was that you could just fly airplanes for a job. That was insane to me. And then as <laughs> I got into the airline environment I started hitting some of the goals that I've always wanted to achieve flying for the airlines I wanted to fly for and then that feeling came over me of turned my little boy's dream into a job I turned it into a thing where I had to get paid a certain amount of money and I needed this many days off and why don't I get a break and why don't I get meal allowances here and you know yeah over time I started to realize that I didn't like who I'd become within that and that's just personal to me. A lot of pilots love the job and love doing it and that's them. But for me, I just found like, wow, this is the thing that was my greatest joy, 
that I always dreamed of as a little boy. But now I'm sitting here complaining and whinging and moaning about all the different aspects of this job. So I tried another job and didn't change. And then I went to another flying job and it was good for a little bit, but then it didn't change. And so to be honest, like who I was in the last year of flying, I didn't like who I became. Primarily too, because I was now starting to get into business. I knew that coaching was what I wanted to do and that I was loving changing people's lives and having an impact. And so now I was doing a full-time flying job and running a business. And so flying Mm. was really starting to get in the way. And I was tired all the time and I was grumpy and I wasn't eating well and I was overweight and was trying to manage a relationship. That's what it felt like. It felt like managing a relationship on top of all this other shit that I'm trying to hold together. And so I became very, very resentful and very lazy and just everything that I'd ever wanted to be as a pilot, I was the opposite. And so it's all part of the decision to leave, to leave the job was, you know, I would always advise someone if, if you don't like what you're doing, either find a way to bring joy and love and your higher self to that job or get out, leave. Don't make mm, it terrible mm. for the people around you. And there was a couple of instances for me where I flew with people that just pulled me up and said, hey, you're not really that much fun to fly with anymore. We know that you're checking out, but some of us want to still do this for a job and still enjoy it and want to do this for a career. So you need to pull your socks up or get out, which is not a nice feeling, you know, when that's something you've always dreamed of doing. So, yeah, for me, I didn't (laughs) exit as gracefully as I would have liked, I guess, or as I should have. But at the end of the day, I I saw who I was becoming and I did make the choice to leave. So I'm, I'm proud of that fact. You brought up something interesting while you were talking there before that triggers something for me as well around when you're looking at those spiritual masters or the gurus or the the people that are writing the books and doing the blogs, the Wayne Dyers, the Tony Robbins. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, if you, a lot of the times you can read those books from a place of lack, mm. from a place of, man, I suck. They don't suck. Maybe they can tell me how not to suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you listen to someone like, like I love Wayne Dyer, and if you watch him speak or you read his books, all he's doing is just what he loves. He just found what he loves and he just loved spiritual exploration. Like that was his favorite thing was just going and reading about different texts. And he loved yeah, all sorts of different religious teachings and books. And he just dove into mm. them and then he just shared his experiences and what worked for him. And he wasn't coming from a place of lack. He wasn't trying to learn about things because he hated himself. He was just, doing what he loved and sharing it with the world and it became very successful doing that. So I think it's easy to look at those people from a place of lack and say, man, how can I be more like you? I heard Oprah say this thing as well. When someone said to her, she asked, what's your big dream in life? And the woman said, I want to be Oprah. I want to be you. And she said, well, you're always going to be the second best at that. Yeah. 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 Don't become the next Oprah, become the best Mark you can possibly be so there is that danger isn't there of looking up to these people and trying to be someone that you're not when if you look deep into their teachings all they're saying is what's within you that's trying to emerge that wants to be shared with the world what's the gift that you've been bestowed that can move everything forward and that you'll find your highest joy from Mm, mm -hmm. yeah like it's i use the word permission again it's this to give ourselves the permission to make that link, make that courageous link. And 
I heard somebody here recently say that, you know, there's a scale and courage is on one end and conformity is on the other. You know, and I think there is a point where you have to leap. And I found that really scary. And I found it scary because when I made the leap and I chose that I'm going to be a different person, I'm going to be happy, but I knew that to be happy, well, I was going to be thinking different. I was going to be speaking different. I was going to be acting different. So if you want to say it alienated me from a lot of my friends, because in all of a sudden it was like, oh, Jesus, Usher, he's different and he's not coming out in a piss. He's not like drinking 10 pints of beer with us and having a crack and He's getting up he's in the morning, he's doing this meditation stuff and yoga. And like, yeah, when he does come out, you know, he drinks a sparkling water. Like, what the hell is going on there? And I found that leap very alienating. And I think it's a very important thing to, to sort of know with people that when you're looking at becoming and when you start getting this connection with that inner voice that we all have, that inner voice that says, you know, you could do something more with your life. We all have that. You know, like even the billionaire has that. The one that's after winning, like, I'm quite sure Usain Bolt has. Well, there could be something more. It's not in athletics anymore, but there's something more. There's like, we all have this voice, but it's, it's okay. That's, that's actually the most sacred thing we have. But it's to sort of know that maybe, you know, like when you do follow that fully, there's a bit of a leap of faith that's needed to get the fullest rewards. I know I made a leap. The day I decided, I, I turned to Matilda and I said, you know, like, don't judge me for this. Don't hold me against it, but I'm going to say something to you. It's like, I feel I'd be the freest man on the planet if I never practiced as a chartered physiotherapist ever again. And I remember just like this feeling, a wave of relaxation, you know, the, the whole, it made sense of oh, the weight of the wor world on your shoulders because everything just relaxed. And I was like, that's it. She looked at me, I was like, I'm never practicing again. And the week before, after three and a half years in business, it was the most profitable week we had the week before. <laughs> Always the way it's a little test from the universe to see if you yeah, can I, give in to those desires or not. But, but I said it and like there was one key thing, you know, like there's, there's so many different questions, life coaches, these books, people can advise you ask, but like of all the different things, I actually came up with my own because it was true. It just, it was a true reflection. Like I had this thing of like, I had all my books of physio, like of the top people in the world, actually good ones from New Zealand, Australia, down, down, down part of the world. And it's like, I sort of reflected if I had a coffee table in front of me and I have 20 minutes to spare, kids are gone, Matilda's out in the garden, whatever, 20 minutes to spare, cup of tea. I'm going to, I get in some chill out time to, to relax and read a book. I've my five favorite books of the top experts I resonate most with in physio. And I have my five favorite books of mind, body, spirit, you know, philosophy, spirituality on the other side. Which one do I pick from? And it was like 100 times out of 100, I'm going to the, to the stack of books that's the mind, body, spirit, nothing to do with physio. It's not that I didn't like physiotherapy, but once I answered that, the next day I said it to Matilda, I said, hey, honey, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to practice as a physiotherapist anymore. And, and effectively, I didn't. I made a decision. I, I think I, I saw a few people I had, the people that I had started their treatment course. I finished those courses out. I didn't take new clients on and that was it. And like, as a result of that, I got a lot of backlash from, from those nearest and dearest to me, like my two brothers that 
you know, it was always really close, as I said, like at the beginning of this of this conversation. You know, like we grew up, we played together, we played football and teams together. Like we, we're really a, a close knit group. But you know, me going on my my unique path, that living my life purpose. When I said it to the guys, or they got wind of that I had told my mother and father that you know I, I was never going to work as a physiotherapist anymore. You know, I still remember two phone calls, and you know, with one of them is 45 minutes. I ended up hanging up at the end of it because like the outburst. I was on the receiving end of like with, with lots of flowery language that he'd never used with me. I was really, really critical. And like, I'd started a blog and it was sort of look at, you know, like you're doing this blog. Who do you think you are? Like, you know, like you're not in position. You're, you're, you're qualified as a physiotherapist to help people with back pain. You're not qualified to do this coaching thing. Like what the hell? You're like, you're not a psychologist. You're not anybody. So just get on with the physiotherapy and along with a heap of other stuff. And, you know, I questioned him was like, well, have you even read the blog? No. But like that didn't matter. Like, and, and my other brother was, was coming out with a lot of other, like, you know, they couldn't understand. And I sort of knew at the time they were coming from love. They truly believed they knew who I had to be to be happy. They felt that there was other things going on that, you know, I was doing it for other, maybe other reasons. I don't know. It, it has no relevance to me. But at the time, I have to say I was stung and I was stung hard because, you know, it, it was like really a roadblock. It was like a, just being smacked in the forehead with a shovel like emotionally from my brothers who on one level I, I probably would have preferred like if they sort of rang me up and said, oh, hey, man, what courage. Like, yo, you go, you, you take on the world. Like, well done. That was so brilliant. Like, what a decision. That took guts. But to be honest, Nathan, like it served me more that they actually threw so much crap my direction. I knew it was from love, but it served me more that like their expression of love was to test me. And like I say this to, you know, all the, the, viewer, the, the viewers, the, the listeners in, you know, those that are contemplating maybe answering that call to, to do something different with their life, maybe to change their job or like to come out and say they're gay or to say, actually, I'm going to quit my job. I just want to travel around the world or, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is whatever dream that they have that is so sacred, it's the most sacred thing that they have. So if they decide to do that, it's just to realize from the offset that when you do something big like that, from my experience and the experience of lots of different things I've heard and guided people through, be ready that your nearest and dearest will challenge you. And I think quite often they'll challenge you in incredibly strong ways. And what I found, I reflected on is it's perfectly natural and it has to be like this. Because like, if you think about it, like if we go back, you know, like, I don't know, 5,000, 10,000 years and, and you're, we're living in tribes, we're nomadic tribes and we're going around in like tribes of about 150 people. And you're growing up, you're, you're whatever age, you're, you're coming into full maturity and like you've been one of the clan, like you've been playing around, you've been messing, like you might go out messing, hunting, but like now you're coming of age and for the first time in your life, you look at the leadership and you say, hey, I've new ideas. We could be hunting different. We could be protecting different. We could be mining like ourselves different. We could be, I've, I've new ideas how we can do this different. You know, all of a sudden, the leaders of the group will see you as a threat. You're not the cuddly little guy that you were supporting all your life. Now you're directly threatening their way of doing things. And you know, all the people that you were friends with, family, friends in, in the locality, 
they're now suddenly looking at you different. Why? Because you're actually testing them. You're sort of saying, I'm different. I'm now making a psychological stance. I have an idea and I'm going to step up to it. Now, for the interest of the survival of the species, if every single fella and every single woman and every single human that, that takes a step up and goes, oh, here, I've an inspired idea. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, yeah, you go, you lead the group. I mean, they haven't been tested. They haven't been tested to see, do they have the strength? Have they developed the true character? You know, have they developed the fortitude, the mentality that with their potentially great idea, do they have that character to see it true? So I think there's this sort of a, and I'm really interested here, just your reflections on this, Nathan, like if it matches in with your experience, with your big leaps. But I believe that this is a natural, biological, social phenomenon that must be. That when, you know, when the Olympic champion, when, when they first go, oh, here, back when they're teenage years, I'm going to win the Olympics, people will laugh at you. They have to laugh at you because if you're to do something big, you must be tested so that the ones that finally lead, the ones that finally lead and win, they've been built by the resistance. And that resistance comes from love. So, you know, I'd put that to you, Nathan. Uh, <laughs> how has your experience of that been? Maybe I'm shooting off, this, off a wrong hymn sheet. Maybe I'm making wrong assumptions. That's my experience. No, it's, it's perfect. I think that for me, like I've tried a bunch of things and got negative feedback or been pushed and I haven't done them. And I've gone, yeah, I've gone back into my shell. And it just proved to me that I didn't want it that bad. But things like personal development and spirituality and what you call mind, body, soul stuff, that's never gone away for me. Mm. Yeah. And that was, that's been deep, deep inside of me since I was a little boy, that wanting to, I don't know, it's hard to put into words the feeling that I feel, but just that I was here for a reason, here for a purpose, here to you know, move people forward in some way. That's never gone away. And so when... I said I wanted to get into coaching and I want to create a life around this. Lots of people laughed and said the same thing. What are you talking about? You haven't got any qualifications. What are you just going to give people advice? What's your life so special <laughs> that you can tell everyone how to live their life? Good one. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. I've had all that 10 times over, but I don't I couldn't give a fuck because I know deep down the truth. And so I chose living over being scared of what people think or doing it wrong or but that showed me that I'm on the right track, that I could not care what other people think, that my belief in myself and that this truth and that what I was put here to do is so strong within me that it's way stronger than anybody laughing at me or thinking it's silly. They don't know. They don't know mm. the truth. They don't know why, they, they don't know what's in me. So why would I listen to that? That they're just reflecting their own insecurities or thoughts or a lot of times from love like you said wanting to protect me from embarrassment or failure or whatever and then every time I've taken a leap and chosen to live incredible things have been on the other side I think sometimes like there's there's people if I go all the way back to when I started flying 18 19 years old there's people that I was working with there that are still there doing the same thing in and out complaining not happy mm. which is fine that's their choice but just as a reference point for me i've been all around the world i've met 
literally thousands of incredible people. I get to interview people like you every week, you know, all from just leaping and taking and doing scary things and giving up security and, you know, risking being laughed at and risking making the wrong decision. And if nothing else, I've just met the most incredible people on the planet by taking that, those leaps, yeah, which to me is wow. valuable. I value like human interaction above any, everything and deep conversation and meeting amazing people. So for me, every time I've taken a leap or done what's scary and this, you know, giving up my flying career, that's by far been the biggest probably after, you know, coming out as gay. Every time I've taken those leaps, the doors have opened, incredible doors have opened that, and things that I couldn't have thought about or foreseen before that. I just had a yeah. call with an amazing woman yesterday who just rang me out of the blue. She'd seen me on Facebook. It doesn't matter about the details, but just an incredible person that I just couldn't believe I was having a conversation with that she would want to talk to me. All the things she's done and the money she'd made and she's just a public, public figure. And, you know, like none of that was possible. That wasn't coming to me by staying safe. Yeah. And I can hear through your story the same thing, that the life that you live all came to you from following what you knew to be true deep down. Yeah, absolutely. I, like when you say there, just, you know, you know, it's true when you persist with it. That's why you're so grateful for the tests. Yeah. I, I look back and, you know, like the, the message to, to any, any client I have now is like really learn to love the challenge. Learn to love the person that tests you. Learn to love the, the person that says, you're never going to do that, man, and says a whole lot more and more difficult. They might insult you. you know, they, they'll question you. Love it. Like, listen to it. Soak it in and go, oh, man, I'm all over that. You know, uh, Seth Godin, you know, Seth Godin, the marketer, really cool yeah. guy. He, he uses the analogy of the writer. And he's like, if you want to be an author or a writer, you have to be comfortable with having writer's block for the rest of your life. <laughs> it's never going away. <laughs> yeah. There's never yeah, going to yeah. be a time where you just get up every day and write 10,000 words with zero effort or any, you know, confrontational thoughts about it. <laughs> and it's the same in business or life. If you're not prepared to just be facing constant challenges, criticism, concerns, your own self-doubt, then it's fine. Stay safe. <laughs> No, absolutely. Like, look at that. I'm sort of passionate from, from my experience in, in marriages with Matilda. You know, I think that's one of the fundamental things talking with guys in coaching now. There's so many issues around marriage, mm. around relationships, like not knowing how to commit, not knowing how to go all in. And I think there's this idea that well, when you get married or you, you move in after like, you know, two years, whatever, like you don't have to get married, but just you commit that when you get to that level, if you commit to move in together, you know, you move from one city to the other and, or you get married, whatever, but then you're sorted. But it's like, what I've realized is that's just when the real shit starts happening. Yeah. That's like, that's, that's when it gets good. Now I didn't realize it was getting good. I resisted the beauty of the controversy, the beauty of the, the daily challenge. How do you get up like in the middle of you're having a crappy period in your life, you're having a crappy day, but how do you actually love the person in front of you? And like I know with Matilda, like I look now and like I practice being grateful every day. I consciously practice it. And people say to me, like I, I've heard people sort of kick back and go, oh, well, if you truly loved her, you wouldn't have to do all this 
everyday practice you know like you're writing these positive aspects about her like if you truly loved her you wouldn't need to put that effort in i think it's, it's like it's a hollywood film notion you know like every romantic comedy at the end is they get together they've had a controversy and it's like you know they all live happily ever after everybody's happy you know the, the you know the classic thing everybody in the crowd has clapped when you know like the, when they've kissed and it's all hugs it's all laughs and off they go into the sunset and we get this idea, and even even with with you know in music, that it's meant to be easy. But I'm not saying it's meant to be hard. But there's a lot of hard stuff in it, and it's made harder when you're expecting that. You know, there wasn't meant to be crap in my marriage. My wife or my partner, or my boyfriend, like you know, my husband, he shouldn't be giving me crap. If he loved me, he wouldn't be giving me crap. But like, you know. We all have stuff to deal with and part of the joy of, for me, of deep relationships and it's deep relationships, you know, intimate relationship with Matilda, but it's a deep relationship like with good friends, you know, like it's a deep relationship. I'll be talking with you, you know, long term in future, I've no doubt, like it's, it's a deep relationship and any deep relationship is the challenge, you know, like this is a challenging conversation. It's useless. If Nathan Seward and Mark Usher fanny around for an hour and 15 minutes sort of talking about, yeah, superficial stuff, man, oh, you're, you're wicked, you're a great life coach, and oh, you're, you were wicked, you were a pilot, oh, yeah, Mark, you were physio, that was really great to get, oh, really brilliant, end a phone call, crap. It's the challenge that drives us deeper in any element of life to bring out more, you know, leading up to this podcast, and I think it's a thing of, you know, being a coach and living just saying that you're going to live an inspired life just you're going to do big things you go like you're going to take on the world in, in whatever thing not to start playing a role that you have to play the perfect role you know i've had three days of really intense emotional psychological difficulties that just ended i think this morning we had a massive breakthrough but for three or four days i was really hard pushed to uh, like we're we're trying to buy a house we're paying a lot of rent Matilda's I'm going all in for for Matilda she has a, a dream of you know starting a, an equestrian center that you know be a healing center with horses for many different people we're paying livery for eight horses at the moment you know we we struggle for rent money at the end of the month because of you know horses but it's like I'm all in I'm all in for providing for her dream. Like I'm all in, like I, I'm committed. Now for those three days, I found it a struggle. Why? Because I start questioning, you know, why is this difficult? I started pointing the finger. My mind started pointing the finger saying, oh man, she's putting us under pressure. I mean, eight horses, you know, what, what are you on about? Like, I mean, have four horses, have one bloody horse. I mean, give us a break. I mean, two of the horses, okay, are for our kids, but like three horses, four, like, come on cut it out after that. You know, when I'm thinking like that, did I feel empowered? No. Did I feel good? No. Did I feel passion? No. Did I feel alive? No. Did I feel that everything was possible? No. When I was feeling that about the horses situation, did my all my other perceptions and everything else in their life, were they good? No. So like at the end of a couple of days, I was like, hold on, I have brought this situation. I own this situation. I was the one that said yes to every single one of those purchases of the horses. I've brought it on myself. I take ownership. I love this pressure. You know, I strive under pressure. Actually, it's like I almost even like call out to the universe. Late at night, I go out every night and, and like I, I sort of speak to the universe. 
I do my own crazy practices, but they work for me. I, I look up at the stars and I say, you know, just bring it on. Just bring whatever challenge. I will prevail. I have this mantra that I say every day and it's like, I am ready. I can do it. I will make it. Like the outcome, I will make it. The outcome is not in doubt. I will always, I will always get there. And you know, I look back at my life. Did I commit suicide? No. Did I break down or break through? Every time, clearly, I broke through. And I think most people, when you look back at your life, we have this sort of insane bias to look at negativity and, and remember the failures. But like any person that comes to me and like any person you'll meet, they've got to that point that they're talking with you. They've clearly broke through more times than they broke down or they wouldn't be there. You know, like any human being that's alive that's still up here, they all have a heroic path. And like, you know, I think that's, that's a very important message to any human out there is to just remind yourself of the epic proportions of what you've been through from the time of your conception, the first nine months. Good God, if you even consider that. It was like, I, I joke sometimes, I think it was like, it was your sperm that made that egg. Like you were a million to one shot. It was your damn sperm. You know, like it wasn't any of the other guys. They went by the waste yard. You won that race. And then you won the race through. Like it's not every kid that actually gets born. You won that race. You came out through that. And every single thing since then, you've survived. You mightn't feel that you've been thriving yet, but that's okay. Like you've survived. You know, I've survived. I've got to this point where I'm talking with Nathan Seward. Wow. You know, like, wow. And like the people listening, you've got to the point in life that no matter what situation you find yourself in, you might be like myself three days ago. The shit has hit the fan. You're neck high, deep in like crappy perceptions. You might feel that really, really intensely. But you're here. And you're listening to this cool podcast. And if you're listening to this cool podcast, it means that you want to thrive. It means that there's something inside of you that, that is saying yes to life. It means, you know, there's something that wants to prevail above all. I find it's really, really empowering when, when we allow ourselves to reflect like that. You know, just for a moment, forget about all the errors, forget about all the mistakes. Like, we need those to learn wisdom. You don't get wisdom without mistakes. But just forget about them for a moment and reflect on, on the brilliance of what you have achieved. Beautiful message, Mark. Very, very inspiring. I love the passion. It's got me all charged up. <laughs> I did the hacker before this, this podcast. <laughs> and I think I'm just unleashing that energy there now. And we're, we're, just, we're just getting going. So uh, <laughs> Yeah, Mark told me the story before the show about learning the hacker and about this incredible Maori guy that came to his little village in, in Ireland and taught him the hacker and how profound an impact that's had on him. It's a very, very cool story. Mark, we've just got a couple of minutes left. If people want to reach out to you, I know so many guys will resonate with your message and just your passion and your journey and things that you've gone through. If people want to reach out to you just to connect with you or say thank you for sharing your story or they want to work with you as a coach, what's the best way to go about that? Uh, well, I leave you with the, the email address. It's markusher2 at yahoo.com. It'll be underneath the, the, the podcast or in the bio. And like I just say, like, if any of you guys are listening, you know, you, you would like a, an experience of a powerful coaching conversation or just as Nathan says, to extend thanks or if any questions to, you know, to maybe even set you in course to living and dying without any regret, because that, that's what I say to look by all means, email me, you know, just let me know, just let us connect and, and see where it goes. 
if we don't connect, we'll never know what could have been. And I love connecting with people. And I find it's so, so important. And, and I love the role as coaching. And I love the work that Nathan, that you're doing here in this podcast is so, so sacred and important. So yeah, by all means, just link in with an email. I'd love to, to talk with you. Last question we always ask is about the dark side and whether you still have a dark side you know, through all the work that you've done. Do you still have something that you've got to watch out for, something that you keep in the dark? And have you found a way to embrace that side of yourself? Yeah, the dark side, I, I think we, we've sort of, I've spoken about it already, but like really specific, my dark side, it's this complaining little victim bitching voice on the inside that on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, on a moment to moment basis, I need to keep in check. And, you know, I do daily rituals of meditation, breath work. I do yoga. I like it. The list goes on. I read books. I talk to people. I go coach. I do coaching with, I have my own coach. I do a lot of work every day. And it's because I have that voice that is very, very destructive. It can pull me apart. It nearly did. And even at this point now where, you know, I'm doing so much better, it's always there. And yeah, like that, that's my dark side. It's, it shows up. Is it really specific? I, I sort of, I knew from your podcast that you asked this question. I try to get more specific, but to be honest, it can show up at any moment. If I don't do all these rituals to keep my general emotional uh, state of being positive, if I don't self-talk and love myself, if I don't do all these practices, if I skip them, like I can skip my morning rituals for one morning and then, you know, the shit hits the fan mid-morning and Matilda has, you know, a really difficult crisis or whatever, or like there's some really difficult thing. I haven't set the ball rolling right. The ship hasn't left the port in the right direction that morning. That's my issue. Then that little voice just comes in and starts with the first comment, the second comment it mightn't be, but if I keep on listening to it, it doesn't go to anything good. So. I don't know if that resonates, but that's that's my dark side. And yeah, it's such a good I, reminder. Like that, it's it's like going to the gym. You know, if you don't go to the gym every day or every other day, then it's, you're not going to get fit. You're going to start getting overweight and unhealthy. And it's such a good reminder that your mental health is a daily practice. You have to have those practices in place, or else that little little niggly thought starts to creep in and then can take over again. Yeah, absolutely. You just. To wrap up on the, on the point, like I, I still remember very clearly, Sagil Rinpoche is the Tibetan Buddhist master that I'd follow as my Buddhist master. I follow lots of different things, but in, in Buddhism, I went to retreats with him and he sort of startled me at one retreat and, and maybe a lot of people, but I remember him saying, he said, you know, he tried one at one stage to forget all his meditation, to forget all his daily teachings, to forget all the rituals that he had learned for the last like previous 45, 50 years. It was like a little social experiment. He, he's teaching in the West the last, I think, 30 years. And he just lived like, if you want to say, a regular Westerner that doesn't really do spiritual practice. And he said, like, you know, after a day, he was a little bit tense. And after a couple of days, he had anxieties. And, you know, and he left it a week. And he got to the point that he was really peed off. The penny dropped for me. I mean, we're talking about somebody that from, I think, the age of three or four has been taught and mentored by some of the greatest living, the, the, the greatest masters of his generation. 
he has submerged himself in these incredibly high teachings. And yet it all it took was a week for the momentum of all that incredible self-work to start coming apart at the seams. And it leads me to go, well, look at that's my humility. My humility is I have that voice. I have that voice that can pull me apart if I don't keep it in check. But I also have the courage to do what is necessary, which is to do the rituals, to do what works for me and to cut out what does not work for me. And that's my that's my life's journey. And, you know, coming from that perspective, that's how I coach. You know, it's a very simple thing. It's so, so simple. Do what feels good for you. Do more of it find out more that you might not have considered before and then try and cut the things that don't work for you. It's a really simple equation. Like being happy, it's funny. It's not so difficult when you just can sort of pick it apart. But uh, yeah, the message is do the work. <laughs> do the work. You know, the Tibetan master, he didn't do the work for a week. He started being neck high in the crap like, like any of us. So if you're neck high in the crap, feel good about it. You know, the Tibetan <laughs> master was neck high in the crap after a week. Don't feel bad, but... You know, the Dalai Lama said it. He's like, you know, there's nothing exceptional about me. It's just I, I do my practices. Find your unique practices that does it for you. Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure. This has been one of my favorite conversations. I've just enjoyed this so much. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for being open. Thanks for touching on some awkward subjects and, and uh, allowing me to explore some things with you as well. It's been a real privilege to have you on the show. Uh, straight straight back at you and like I said to you joking before and to, to the crowd here this is my first podcast I'm loving this experience I've loved every single moment of it it's been my privilege to, to speak with you really really cool message your work that you're doing is exceptional and best wishes always in, in future with that and and like a big shout out and thank you to, to every person that has listened to this podcast and I wish you all the heartiest best wishes on your journey to happiness, whatever that means for you. So thank you. Thank you very much, Nathan. Thanks, mate. Well, there you go, folks, my conversation with the wonderful Mark Asher. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. So much fun to talk to Mark and hear about his life story and, and talk about some of those topics that we brought up. If you want to reach out to Mark, he'd love to hear from you. MarkUsher2 at yahoo.com. We'll put that email address in the show notes. Let him know you heard him on the show and you just wanted to reach out, say thanks, connect with him, or have a coaching conversation with him. He'd love to hear from you. As always, I love seeing you guys share the show around, like it on Facebook, make a comment here and there, let me know what you love and don't love about the show because I'm always happy to take that feedback. Thanks again, guys. Have an amazing week and I'll see you next week for episode 36 of The Nathan Seawood Show. That was The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men.